0: this is the podcast you wouldn't want to miss miss get your all-important dose of what's hot and what's not according to Dino or maybe it's Doris and Dino oh! F- who knows just listen okay because this podcast will make you think or not entertain you and sometimes piss you off in any case it'll be interesting and dino or doris and dino will make you come back for more this is not bullshit. This is the Tearaway Podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Mr. Robin Banks. Welcome to the Tearaway Podcast. It has been a while, but I've got a special one for you today. All those people that are into writing, they want to know about what? I went through writing a book, getting the away out there. I'm going to discuss it with John MacDonald. Really good friend of mine. Really helpful and insightful for those who are trying to get a book deal, thinking they've got a book in them. Just listen to the interview. Just listen to the things that we say about it. But also, John does this day in, day out. He is a professional writer. So he is going to take you through the processes and what the current state of mind is with commissioning editors. So sit back, everyone. And, uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy this one.
2: Do
3: you want to explain who you are and what you do? I'm a writer. I don't like the term author, because author kind of limits you to uh, writing books, but you know, I'm a writer, I write all sorts of things, books, screenplays, graphic novels, you know, ghostwriting, everything.
2: So you was my ghostwriter on The Tearaway. That's right. So the questions that I get asked most often, or I'm told by people, is you didn't write that book yourself, John MacDonald wrote it.
3: Yeah, well, with, with The Tearaway, I mean, yeah, as you say, you you had written, it's your story. It's not my story, it's your story. So you you tell your story and I just polish it up really. And you know, Add a little bit of style to it and uh, knock it into shape. That's acceptable to, uh, to a publisher. In this case, it was Simon & Schuster, I think, wasn't it? Yeah. What's been the most enjoyable, rewarding work that you've done for someone else?
2: Oh, Eileen McKenney. Eileen McKenney. Yeah, now, Boston she, girl. She was a character because you was doing Eileen McKenney before you did me, which is, I think, how we led on to getting a at Simon Schuster. The difference between Eileen's book and my book, she went with the swearing. Yeah. Every other page littered in
3: swearing, which yeah was kind of... But that's how she spoke. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, that was Eileen. If, if you hadn't included the bad language, it, it wouldn't have been her. And people reading the book would have said, "Nah, that's not Eileen. You know, she doesn't, she have some blinds and, you know, and uh, I mean, I don't know if I can say this here, but I mean, the, the great story I had with Eileen was when we, uh, when we went down to Simon & Shuster where, before we signed the contract. And we're in a room, a big boardroom, and... There's one, two, three, four uh, Simon & Schuster executives on one side of the table, including Kerry. Kerry Sharp, as you remember. And then there's me, Eileen, and the, the agent on the other side, who is also a woman. And Eileen was explaining her story to them, saying about when she went into Boston first. She said, yeah, I went into Boston, and the first thing I fucking saw was this fucking great dyke. So I went up and smacked her in the face. And I thought, hang on a minute. There's all these publishing women here. One of them One is bound man. to be a lesbian. <laughs> there goes there goes the contract. We're fucked. We got it, and she got a great advance, probably the biggest advance I've ever got uh, for a book. Mm. And they loved her. And she wasn't politically correct, Eileen. We we're going out. There's a guy behind the reception with a turban, and she's effing and blinding at him, saying, "Oh, look at that fucker with a fucking turban on him. <laughs> <laughs> They're fucking everywhere." You know, it, I don't know if you ever remember seeing Alf Garnett. Yeah. Uh, in he used to. It, Love thy neighbour. Yeah. Eileen was a female Alf Garnet.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what the social media shit? Find us on Twitter and TikTok at The Tearaway Podcast or on Facebook group page The Away.
2: What do you think has been your best bit of work? There's two things I want to say. One is that book that you wrote about the Jews. About Jewish people. Yeah, it was something, I'm sure it was something to
3: do with I in. wrote a book called Absolution. Absolution, that's it. But it wasn't specifically about Jewish people. It was about three different guys. One was a Jew, one was a Muslim, and one was a Christian. Yes. And they all had people coming after them for one reason or another. You know, they, they were all in, in the shit, really. And they kind of got to know each other by chance, by circumstance. And they, they had to form an alliance. The three of them had to work together to get out of the various situations they were in. And that's more or less what it was about. It was about these three guys from different cultures, different religions, having to work together and overcome their differences in order to uh, to save themselves, really.
2: Do you think that sometimes you push the boundaries in your writing? Always. Because yeah. I remember when Absolution came out, I said to you, you're gonna get a hit on you for some of the things you've said in that book.
3: Yeah. Well, I was critical. I was critical of Zionism in Israel, uh, what's happening with the Palestinians. Um, I was also critical about fundamentalist Christianity and also crit- critical about some aspects of Islam. So, you know, I took a pop at all three, yeah. And you know, saying you know it's, it's this kind of fundamentalist attitude that we're right and everybody else is wrong. Um, that uh that was the enemy of these three guys and when they worked together and found their own found the, the common denominator between them which is basic humanity that uh, they were able to overcome that yeah so i'm am sure some people might not like what i said in it but then that's every writer does that you you, you write something you can't be worried about who's going to take offense from it well i think salmon rusty was a bit well, Salman Rushdie, I mean, that was overblown, wasn't it? I mean, I mean Salman Rushdie um, and the Satanic Verses would never have been a hit if the Ayatollah hadn't put a, a fatwa on yeah. it, nobody would have read it.
2: <laughs> Do you, uh, when, when I see things that happen in schools like RE teachers or history teachers and they show the Prophet Muhammad on a slide, and then the kids go and and say, oh, I see a Prophet Muhammad on, on the wall. It was on a projector and the teacher was teaching me about this. And then the the kids' parents go to school, want that, that teacher sacked because that teacher has blasphemed or whatever you want to call it against the Prophet Muhammad, but trying to educate the kids. But because Muslim culture says you can't do this, you can't do that, whatever it is. They feel they've got the right to sack a teacher who's trying to do what they're doing in an, an English country, which is not predominantly Muslim, Christian, trying to teach Muslim kids and Christian kids.
3: Well, this is a kind of a this is a this is a, a kind of a hot topic because in schools in RE in schools, I mean, what do you teach? Do you teach Christianity? Do you teach Judaism? Do you teach Islam? Do you teach Buddhism? You know, everybody's got different opinions. I mean. Personally, with my kids, when they were growing up, I didn't teach them any religion. I thought, well, when they grow up, they can make their own mind up, whether Mm. they wanna be Christian or whatever they wanna be. I have no objection to anybody. I mean, I've got really good friends who are Jewish. I've got really good friends who are Muslim. They make their own choices. As long as you don't start imposing that on other people and saying, you have to do this. Like, I was brought up in a strict Catholic environment in Ireland where everybody was Catholic and you, it, you, you were taught Catholicism in school and you had to be a Catholic, really. Like some places in America, you know, if you don't go to church on a Sunday morning, uh, whatever kind of Baptist church they go to, uh, everybody will kind of shun you, that kind of way. It's difficult for schools and for teachers because they have to have the right balance in RE. Whereas if you want, say you're a Muslim and you want your kids to be to learn about Islam, then take them to the mosque mm. where, where you, you have imams who will teach them, same with any 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 other kind of religion, you know, Catholicism, take them to the church, got mass. But in school, I think, you know, I'm not a teacher, so I don't really know how they, how they decide on their curriculum, especially RE, but I think they should have a balance and, yeah. and say to the kids, well, look, there are different kinds of religion, there's this, 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 and we're gonna teach you about all of them and then you know when you get old enough to you, you can decide which is right and which is wrong or yeah. maybe none of them
2: I just think I just think that parents know that they're in an English state
3: school yeah but so to answer poor. your question I don't think anybody has the right to come in and have a teacher sacked no, because uh, really. because they showed a slide of a particular religion trying to educate the children. I mean, if it was something that was derogatory. Exactly. uh, Then it would be a different thing, you know. If they had, I don't know, Mohammed fucking a pig or something like that, you know. I mean, know, John, that's a thought. I didn't need my head this early in the morning. (laughs) Like David David Cameron. (laughs) Doing a David Cameron on it.
2: (laughs) When did you come over from Ireland? And why did you come over from Ireland?
3: I came over here from Ireland back in the 1960s when I was a teenager. Um, and with, I, with your parents? No, on my own. And I lived in London. I lived all over London. Um, Hammersmith, Elephant and Castle, you know, knocking around really, working, not working, What were you,
2: you doing as, for your job then? Because I know you were doing something
3: before, right? I, I was working for the National Bank in Cavendish Square, off Oxford Street, when I decided to go in. But you know, this was the '60s, Dean. You know, it was peace and love, brother. You know, and uh, you went in if you felt like it. If not, we used to go up the front of the gardens and just lay around in the sun and stuff like that, and smoke weed. And, what
2: instead of going to work?
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. and that was tolerated in the 1960s. Anything was tolerated.
2: You can't run a country by might going to work this week. Well, lots of
3: people went to work, but we were young, very young. You know what I mean? So we. We went to work when we felt like it. But then I went back to Ireland because Helen, who I'm married to now. H. H, yeah, as, as you call her. Um, I wanted her to come over to London, not live with me, because I was living in digs with five or six other blokes, you know? And Sharing it, a house or something. Yeah, it was different rooms. It was just a tip, really, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Blokes, when your socks got dirty, you just threw them out the window, that kind of way. You went down there. Petticoat land okay. and bought another, <laughs> another pair. <laughs> Nobody cleaned the cooker. You know, it was, it was rough. But there were, there were a group of girls that we knew down the road in King Street in Hammersmith. And I wanted Helen to come over and kind of stay with them. But her dad wouldn't let her. So the only way I, out of it was for me to go back home, which I did, got a job. And we got married. And then we came back over here. And he couldn't stop us.
2: How old was you when you were married? Age, nineteen. Nineteen. Yeah. So when did you get into the, the writing stage of your life? Well, and why I, did you change from what you was doing prior to writing?
3: Oh, I've always, I've always written. You know, even even at school, I wrote stuff. You know, for the school magazine, and I went to grammar school. I was writing stuff then, um, and most of the jobs that I did during my life before I became a, like a professional writer was to uh, subsidize my writing, mm. you know? I worked just to get money and then I wrote in the evenings, on the weekends or whatever, um, and you know, I've, I've worked at everything over the years. I've worked, as I said, in a bank, I've worked Prudential insurance Company, I've worked on building sites, i worked as a barman, i worked in a dairy, uh, i worked for Travelers Tarmac Inn, you know? so you name it i've done it speaking of travelers your book tribe tribe the book is called tribe but and the film is called, called traveler, traveler.
2: Yeah. yeah i said to john i want to get this story out called 1972 which then became a tearaway. john at the time was saying i need to get a film out um, i've got a screenplay called tribe and he said you help me and i I'll, I'll help you john introduced me to someone called river george who we met at bafta river george became the producer And between John and River George, the two of them tried to get financial backing from the BFI and from um, investors in in the city, as I remember it. River George began the process of auditions. Do you remember that? We was in London at um, Spotlight Studios.
3: I remember, yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, I think me and the poet, Matt McCourt, came and...
3: I remember Matty, yeah.
2: The... Oh, what's his name? Ray Winstons, mate. Um, Ronnie Fox.
3: Ronnie Fox, that's Ronnie right. Fox
2: was auditioning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, Lock, Lockstock, Two Smoking Barrels. That's what he was that's right. Yeah. He was the one who had the, uh, the M16 or whatever it was. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Can everyone stop getting shot and all that? Frank Harper. Um, so, I got involved at the early, early stages of the casting side and um, became friends with River George and whatever else. River George made it known to me that she was going to pull the rug from everyone. And what I did was I warned you. I think we then had David Essex on board, or his sons on board, Billy. I told you, told Ronnie, this is not going to go to plan. River is going to do a runner with everything. We all then parted company because River then said, right, I don't want Dean anywhere near this production. It then went ahead. You, I think, you went down to Dorset, didn't it, to film?
3: Yeah, yeah. We fil- it was all filmed on a on a gypsy um, horse farm in Dorset. Charlie Cooper, that's it. Was he the man. funded
2: it with David Essex.
3: He, him, and David Essex uh, hmm. funded the film. Yeah, yeah. I mean, David Essex came in. He want- he wanted to have a part in it, which he did have, but it was mainly because his son Billy Cook was going to get the leading role. Um, of Owen McBride, who is, who is the main character in it. And he was very good in it, Billy. You know, I, I, I thought he played a part very well. But anyway, River George, something went on with money between her and uh, Charlie Cooper, who was funding it. it was something to do with 10 grand got paid twice uh, by mistake into River's account. And she never told uh, Charlie Cooper. And she put, pocketed it or something like that. I don't know the ins and outs of it, so I hope I'm not going to get sued for libel or anything. But anyway, in the end, it was a wrap and we had a party on the, on the night. And she ran off with the, with the tapes, master the master copies, and uh, fucked off to Australia somewhere and we couldn't get them back. So in the end, uh, David Essex took out and Charlie Cooper took out a lawsuit against her, saying if she come back to the UK, she was going to be arrested. Blah blah blah. So she came back eventually and went to court, and they went got to the high
1: court, high in court in London. And yeah, it I remember was in the papers.
3: That. Yeah, yeah,
2: some good publicity.
3: And anyway, she gave back the uh, the tapes, I think, but there were bits missing, so we had to reshoot a lot of it. And then during the reshoot. Billy Cook fell off a horse and broke his arms. So then it had to be postponed until he until he recovered. So it, there was a lot of delays with it. And then, you know, I mean, the script that I wrote for it was a great script. And I remember talking to the all the technical guys, you know, the cameramen, sound men, electricians, engineers, all those guys. And they were working for peanuts on it. Mm. And they said, the only reason we're working on this is because of the script. It's a fantastic script, but it got cut to bits. It got savaged. Yeah, it launched at the film festival down in uh, East London. Uh, And yeah, but if the question you asked, was I happy with it? No, I wasn't. It wasn't what it should have been or what it was intended to be. I think
2: there's always going to be this issue with the person who creates this, which ultimately is you, you have your vision. I think this is why it gets optioned. It gets optioned and then it's, thanks, we've optioned it, we've got it, we don't, we don't want anything to do with you now because that's the basis of what we're gonna start with. How it ends up, completely different to how it's written. And I think that's always gonna be a dynamic between the writer and the, the director, basically.
3: Oh yeah, I mean, I appreciate that. I know for a fact that you know what goes in at one end is not what comes out the other end when, mm. when, when it comes to making films. Well, I just think this could have been done better um, if it had a bit more funding. I mean, it was private funding, and with a bit more money, it could have been a much better film. You know, I don't want to say anything about the director, but you knew him.
2: Well, I I, I was in the process at the beginning when when we met him at BAFTA, and um, we was told that he was a BAFTA nominated director. He was fantastic, up and coming. R-
3: River wanted him to yeah. do it because. I don't know. She could control him, I suppose. You know, because before that we had a different director. We had a, a Mexican guy. Um, what's his name? Alex. 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 Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah. I had some great times. Some great times. There's a lot of times I can't remember. There's obviously the time we was talking about last night at uh, Waxi O'Connor's.
3: Getting thrown out of there because of because of you.
2: It wasn't because of me. <laughs> I all all that happened was when. Right, to explain, John, myself, Barry Ryan, who's a producer, Paul McNeely, who's a producer, actor.
3: Uh, yeah, there was somebody else there, I can't remember. Was it Ian Burfield? It might have been there. Ian, yeah. He's in EastEnders at the moment. Yeah, it might, it might have been him, yeah.
2: But there was, a, there was about eight of us at a table having a meeting. So back in, back, about 10 years ago when Tearaway was being made and John was making Tribe, we was having lots of meetings in London and... We met producers, we met casting directors. We, we made meetings with everyone, didn't we? Never mm-hmm. came, nothing ever came of it. Yeah. Everyone was full of shit. Most I can, of them are bullshit yeah, yeah, I can do this, I can do that. Yeah. I've just come off Harry Potter, I've just come off Disney. Yeah. Fuck this, that, and next thing. Promising as the world delivery, yeah. fuck all. Didn't ever
3: put the piss in most of them. Yeah.
2: The only people that have done something is John and myself because we've got yeah. film made, we've got Tearaway made, we've got fucking books. John's published many books. Everyone else was just bullshit and bollocks. But anyway, this time we was in Waxy O'Connor's and we was talking about talking to God, your book, Talking to God. That's right, yeah. I think what was trying to get, talking to God and Ram Raid, I think those are the two subjects we were talking about. And as we was chatting, a lot of food came out. Now you remember it better than me, but all I remember was just saying, you can put that down here.
3: What it was, there were people on a, on a table just across from us in one of these little cubicle places and they ordered the food. And when it came, they'd, they'd gone. So nobody knew where they'd gone. So I said to the waiter guy, what are you gonna do with the food? And he said, well, it'll probably get thrown out. So I said, well, no, we'll, we'll have it, put it on our table. Steak, everything. We we were we were lashing into we it. We never
2: said anything to anyone else, and everyone thought we'd just bought dinners.
3: Yeah, but what happened was the people had only had they hadn't left. They'd moved to another little cubicle area because if you've ever been in Maxie O'Connor's, it's all little compartments. It's actually got a living tree going straight for the Yeah, it. and they were they were saying, "Well, where's our food?" And they, well, those people over there had I eating it.
0: <laughs> If and the next thing, we, quick.
3: and then we looked around and there was a, these massive bouncers. seven foot tall Russian bouncers behind us. And the manager. And the manageress. And, the manageress. Uh, and uh, we did offer to pay for it, but she wouldn't have none of it. Yeah. And she just threw us out and said, don't come back.
2: <laughs> what is the highlight of your career to date?
3: The highlight? Yeah. Mm, blimey.
2: What is the thing you're most proud of? Like, obviously, <clears throat> Absolution
3: was fantastic. Most of the books that I've done, especially for other people, uh, have been very good, you know, like Borsal Girl for Eileen, Survivor for Tara O'Shaughnessy, uh, Street Girl for Rosanna McGrattan, Brazilian Girl. Was,
2: was, what was the one we stayed at the Waldorf for? When we went to the Phoenix for the book launch. Was that the Brazilian
3: Girl? Oh, that was, yeah, no, that's a different Brazilian girl. I've, I've written a couple of books for Brazilian women. That was uh, The Girl Who Made Me Dance. That was right. a, a novel for a, a lady called Jill. Yeah. And she's living in Amsterdam now. And that was a, a lesbian book about a lesbian affair. And that's, we had a so, launch at the Phoenix Arts Club mm. just before COVID. Um, well, February 1. Yeah. Um, no, that that's a different thing. Um, but I think the best, the be- they've all been good, but the- something that I'm involved in now, I think is probably the best thing I've done, and that's a, a book called Cien, Sien, S-I-E-N, Sien. Now, it's about the relationship between Vincent Van Gogh and Klasina Maria Hornick, who was his model and mistress, and she was a prostitute and he found her starving on the streets in the Hague and he took her in and she modeled for him and he wanted to marry her but she had a son now it's it's controversial whether the son was van gogh's or not but i make the point in the book i've written this book with a lady called lauren francis so it's not it's not my name on it but it's lauren's name on it but I've...
2: are you ghostwriting it? Then?
3: Well <clears throat> lauren's an artist and she's very much into Van Gogh and stuff like that, and she she knew a lot of the technical stuff, mm. and she did a lot of research and all the dates are right and everything like that. Whereas I just kind of polished it up, like I did with yours, mm. you know, with the tearaway. But this tagline is the greatest love story never told, never told, yeah. Because she's been eradicated from the Van Gogh's life because of what she was—a prostitute, yeah—and. Um, when I say mistress, he was, she was his lover, yeah? To put it more delicately, mm. yeah? As well as his model. He didn't pay her any money. He gave her food and lodgings mm. and because she and was... A she, and a little bit more. And a little bit more, yeah. And she had a boy. And we make the point in the book that the boy was Van Gogh's, even though art historians say he wasn't Van Gogh's. But anyway, Van Gogh's family were as you know, very religious. His father was a, a minister and he, he was a pauper. He never sold any of his paintings apart from one in his lifetime. And his brother, he was supported by his brother, Theo. And they put pressure on him to get rid of her uh, or did stop all his support. And in the end, she left herself because she didn't want Van Gogh to lose his lifeline of financial support. And she gave away her two children and she went back to being a prostitute. And eventually, according to our history, Van Gogh shot himself in a wheat field in France. Yeah. But he didn't. He was, CN he shot him. Really? Yeah. Yeah. And we prove, we prove it in the book. Um, and then she drowned herself in, uh, in Rotterdam. She threw herself in the canal. What? Uh, shoot. Him? It was accidental. She, oh. she was trying to get a gun from, uh, there was a young guy there. Rich, th- these rich guys used to go from Paris, young young people, during the summer holidays to, to these little French villages where, uh, verse where Van Gogh was. And this guy, um, he was rich and he, he he used to wear a Buffalo Bill outfit and a gun, you know? And Van Gogh, Um, he he had an altercation with CN in a pub and he waited for her and Van Gogh when they were coming home and he had a gun and there was a tussle and Van Gogh got shot. Now, nobody would have believed her story and she would have been convicted of murder Mm. and sent to the guillotine. So Van Gogh told everybody that he shot himself. But they never found a gun, they never found the paintings that he was working on, um, and we, we we do all this in the book. But anyway, that's 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 I'm um, you know particularly uh, proud of that bit of work because it's it's a fictionalized version. I mean, all all the stuff in it about Van Gogh is true. I mean, you can check all the dates where he was, what he did at these times, but there's very very little known about. Cien. Mm. So some of that is, is fictionalized, but you know, it's, it's, it's a story and it, in, you know, it's there. Uh, that, that book came out last, last summer, July, and now we have um, a series bible for TV series and eight, eight episode TV series and we've, we've done the series bible and we've done the first episode. We're pitching that at the moment to, to various producers. Good stuff. So that that's probably the, the best thing I've done, I think.
2: Leslie Grantham, what was he like? Amy Winehouse, what was the connection to you? Um,
3: Which one do you want first? Blake Fielder-Civil? I, I can never get it right. You went to see him in? I went to see him in Sheffield. Um, I did a book with uh, his mum, Georgette Civil. It's called uh, Blake and Amy or something like that, anyway. He was still with her at the time. He. Um, I did it with his mum, who was her mother-in-law at the time. It was about Blake mostly and his relationship with Amy Winehouse, what he was really like, and not this bad boy of the tabloids who liked drug to, addict, yeah, uh, heroin I like, addict. How they like described him, him yeah, Pete wasn't
2: it?
3: Yeah, and they like to uh, they like to blame him for everything that yeah. happened to Amy Winehouse, um, which wasn't his fault. I mean, a lot of it was her management's fault. They supplied her with whatever she wanted more or less you know if she wanted it they got it for her it was it was kind of the, the, the true story behind the relationship
2: I remember at the time when we was trying to, when, when you was having the meetings and going around Amy Winehouse's father Mitch Mitch hmm. was creating issues which was stopping it from
3: yeah I out, mean which,
2: <laughs> which only changed when she died because then it paved the way for you to get that out
3: he didn't He didn't want, he didn't want the, the book to come out, and he threatened all sorts of legal actions, you know mm. because I mean it was in a lot of people's interest that Blake was blamed for everything yeah, but yeah?
2: Well, deflected everything that Amon was going. Through.
3: and you know, I'm not saying he wasn't responsible for some of it, but th- there was two of them, you know. The, the, they were both junkies, mm. alcoholics. You name it. Just Put it like a bit like um, you know that. What do you call it? Punk rocker. What was that book? S- Sid, Sid, and, Sid Nancy. and Nancy. Yeah. It was a, It was another Sid and Nancy. You yeah. know? Uh, Blake and Amy. And uh, it it told a story behind the scenes, what happened, and you know when he went to prison, um and, and, and what really happened, and. He divorced her because he didn't take any of her money or anything like that. I mean, Mitch got all the money when she died, you know, so.
2: Yeah, I think he set up the Amy, Amy Winehouse Foundation.
3: Yeah, he did, yeah. yeah.
2: Was that successful when it came out?
3: Yeah, it, it's, to, to be quite honest, we couldn't get a big publisher to take it on. You know, you know we go for an independent. We went for a small independent publisher um, in the end. That was the only way we could get published. None of the big boys would take it. You know, and we had a really good agent, as well, who, who was uh, really keen on it.
2: Who, who was the agent? Was it our agent? At, um... No,
3: no. Uh, I can't remember her name now, but she was one of the top agents in London. And she hawked it around everywhere, but they were all afraid of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah they thought, fuck, you know, if, I, if we do this, we're going to get hit by lawsuits from Mitch and everyone, you know?
2: As we know, One of the golden rules in being published and the biggest fear of a publisher is to be sued. Yeah. Lo and behold, we get sued. Yeah. Nine months into the 0 (laughs) away, getting top ten bestseller, number one in all bookshops. Yeah. And then we get sued. Sued, yeah. I don't know. A lot of a lot of authors at the time said to me that if you're getting sued, you're doing something right.
3: But it was You're telling the truth.
2: Yeah. And this is this is the issue. That it was all the truth. Yeah. And The person didn't want that truth to be out there. Everyone else we had consent from. We had written consent because that's what the lawyers... Yeah. I remember when we went to acquisitions, I didn't go to work. I was at the end of the phone because you were saying that today's the day of acquisition, it will either be taken or it won't. And I'll never forget that day that we found out it had been acquired. Do you still get the same buzz with every book if it gets acquired? oh, you get an advance. Do you get that yeah. Because to me, it was like huge.
3: Yeah, yeah. It was a huge
2: moment in my life. I mean, you were always saying, I'm going to make you famous. I'm going to make you famous.
3: It's so hard to get anything published these days, Dean, you know, because I don't know what it is, but especially the mainstream publishers anyway, they just want the same old thing over and over and over again. And they're not prepared to uh, take any kind of risks with, Mm. with new stuff or stuff that's not already been done. And I don't know why it is. So yeah, to to get an acquisition from a top publisher is great, great yeah, news. Simon & Schuster, who
2: initially refused that in 72, or 08, yeah, and I think it was on the back of uh, yes. Borstal Girl that you managed to push it to Kerry again.
3: Yeah, yeah. As you know, have set up Gatecrasher books, which is our own publisher now, for books that we think has a market outside of the uh, of the mainstream market that that has a niche market. Yeah. Because we did um, we did staying strong for Stephen Murray, the VMX world champion in America, who's now Is, who,
2: was he crippled?
3: Yeah, he had a massive accident and he's uh, quadriplegic. He's paralysed from the neck down, has been for ten years now. Um, we did his book, but that was that appealed to uh, action sports. So you had your action sports like uh, BMXing, um motorbikes, skateboarding, snowboarding—all these, you know, all these crazy people who do this really way-out sports. Um, so that had that niche market as well as the mainstream. Um, we also did uh, Lee Martin's hippie. <laughs> <laughs> Because Lee uh, Lee this, runs.
2: This is where you take your job to the extreme. So I'll let you tell about your experience of getting a train. Because you went to one of his uh, concerts. did not. He put on like a a
3: hippie. Lee Lee, Lee runs Lake Fest, which is a summer music festival. I love music festival. Lost this year, yeah. It, yeah. But you know when we were when we were doing hippie, he invited me to uh, a horse drawn. It was a horse drawn. Uh, soiree up in a field up in the middle of nowhere in Gloucestershire so we had we we got a cab to the end of this lane and we had to walk the rest of it because it was full of mud and horse shit for about fucking half a mile and we came to this field with all these new age travelers in there and caravans and horses and music going, and, and uh you know and we were eating these little brownie cakes <laughs> <laughs> and nobody told me what was in them. <laughs> and we were drinking, uh, what was it, rum and ginger ale and eating these brownie cakes. He was
2: texting me at the time.
3: Yeah, I was stoned. was fucked. I was fucking stoned out of my brains. <laughs> and uh, so was Lee. And I said to him, look, I've got to get back to, to Hertfordshire. How am I going to do it? And he said, I don't know. He said, walk down the lane to the end of the lane and see if you can get a cab to the station. So I did. And I fucking didn't know where it was going. Got a cab. Got to this little tiny railway station in the middle of nowhere. There's two platforms. Two platforms. And it looked like the last train that went through there was a steam engine in 19th fucking century or something. And I didn't know whether I was on the right platform or not. But I didn't care. You know, I was fucking stoned, man. You know. Anyway, this train came in. I got on it. Didn't know where it was going. But it took me into Birmingham New Street, luckily enough. And I had to get another train from there down to London. Get to Euston Station. Get another train out to Hemel Hempstead. By the time I got to Hemel, it was about five in the morning. <laughs> and I was sober.
2: <laughs> do you remember? Do you remember that time we were? <laughs> fucking hell, the Days the days we had we was in Wimbledon for some kind of meeting. And you and you said should we go and see David Essex? But we've been drinking all Oh
3: yeah, 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 <laughs> so yeah. So
2: we ended up I don't know. What, I can't remember who we was meeting. Maybe Mark Bannerman or I can't remember who was meeting. Anyway, it was in Wimbledon. Yeah. You said, "Fuck it, let's go and see David Essex." Yeah, yeah. So you rang David. David said, "I'll put your name on the door. Come in." Yeah. So we went to the, the theatre. He was doing his show, uh, revived the show because he was in EastEnders at the time, wasn't he? Yeah. Well, come out of EastEnders yeah, 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 yeah. Wanted to do a show, and at that time, obviously, David Essex was heavily invested in. Traveller, but weren't you doing a book for him as well?
3: Yeah, I, I was doing, um, not a book, I was doing a his stage play, All the Fun of the Fair. All the
2: Fun of the Fair, so that, that's what we went to see, All the Fun of the Fair, yeah, with David Essex and his wife. Is that right?
3: I can't remember who was in it, yeah, but anyway, we were steaming pissed, we were pissed over, <laughs> friends, sitting at the back of the theater, taking a piss, <laughs> it was full of all women. <laughs> It's full of old women in their 60s. <laughs> oh, David, David. <laughs> and every time he says and he's, something, he's taking a piss all the time. And I think, yeah, I think we got thrown out. I'm not sure. I can't oh. remember. We, we went to see oh, David. Oh, we went backstage, yeah. I went yeah, to see yeah.
2: David. And you said, uh, David, this is Dean who's going to be playing the actor of the copper in Traveller.
3: And he I, I remember in. you with a bandage on your ear or something. I didn't just you? come out of hospital. Yeah.
2: I got, I got a. God, and yeah. I said
3: to him, oh, well, we just been in a fight in a pub or something like that, and, uh, or some some weird shit." He was not happy. No, he wasn't happy. And he though. said, "He's
2: not. He's not going to be an actor in my film. I've got someone else to play that."
3: That's right. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs>
2: we we ended up leaving him. Fortunately, you got the tagline for the book, but it's away off it. Um, but yeah, we uh, we just sat watching all the fun of the fair, just laughing and giggling. You could just see him trying to get his lines out, looking at us. We could kill us. We're just. <laughs> <laughs> Hysterical laughing and yeah. just fucking get told to shut up and yeah. terrible, terrible things we've got up to.
3: Mad days, yeah. I mean, you shouldn't get pissed when you go in these places, you know, because
2: I don't know a single meeting. I think every time we had a meeting, we both turn around to each other and go, Right, we're not drinking until at least five. So that gives us five hours of meetings. And I can guarantee that twenty minutes into a, a meeting would be on the Guinness. Yeah, yeah. The,
3: yeah, or the lago or something. Yeah, yeah.
2: And, and by the end, we'd be texting each other, did you get home all right? Now yeah. I'm still in the tax. Yeah, yeah. Fucking madness. So you're on death row in America because you're a controversial author and they've finally seen sense and bought you in and you're going to have a lethal injection or non-lethal injection because some states don't fully kill you. They give you a non-lethal lethal injection. Anyway, your last meal, what would your last meal be? Full English. Really? Yeah. Is that all you would have? Would you have a starter? Would no, you no, have a no, The main? full
3: English: sausage, bacon, black pudding, oh, black eggs, pudding. black pudding. I mushrooms. Like. Do you have? Do you like hash black browns? Hey. Do you like black pudding? Black pudding, white pudding. You know, you know white, 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 It's white, pig's, pig's blood. I know it is. Yeah.
2: I used to have black pudding. I was born with black pudding, and when I found out what it was, I stopped eating it immediately.
3: But you can get uh, white pudding without the blood in. Can you? Yeah, yeah.
2: Would you have a Guinness?
3: A Guinness? Yeah. Would you wash it down with a Guinness? With a Guinness. Uh, You're going to die. You're never going to see light. Uh, I don't know. I, I, mean, I don't like drinking beer with, with food. You don't? No, I prefer oh. coffee, water, something like that, a soft drink. Yeah. Is that what you'd have? Just a... Yeah, maybe or coffee something.
2: or a glass of so you're water. Ne- This is your last moment. You just go into the gallows, non-lethal, lethal injection.
3: Yeah. You have full fry up. Yeah, and a, and a glass of milk of or coffee oh. or something like that. Yeah, yeah. So what advice would you give to up
2: and coming authors to get published?
3: I mean, you've got to have a lot a lot of strings to your bowl, really, if you want to be a professional writer. And I, and I mean writer, not author. First of all, for the few people who have, who, who write a book and it's an immediate bestseller, there are hundreds and hundreds of other people who who haven't, who, who you know. And you, you you need to be prepared to do anything to be a writer, you know, to make money to live on. So that means ghostwriting, writing for the screen. I started off writing for the stage, hmm. um, stage plays in London, in the Soho Theater and places like that take jobs that might, you know, not very exciting, you know, jobs that maybe are a bit of a chore doing, but mm. you're going to make money out of them. And that, that keeps you going. It it all depends on on what kind of a writer you want to be. But personally, I'm a writer and I write anything that comes along, if it's going to pay me, if it's, if it's going to make me some money to live on, then I'll do it. And then it, that that gives you... The opportunity to then to do the creative stuff mm. that you might not necessarily make a lot of money out of but it's, it's it's what you want to do and and it's out there and you're proud of it and you have to do the old mundane jobs along with that mm. to survive you know but yeah if anyone if people want to be writers first of all i'd say is don't do it get a different job be an electrician or a plumber make more money at it but if you if you insist on being a writer then be prepared to write and 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 Write every day, mm. you know I mean a lot of people say, "Oh you know I, i've got a book in me can't get around to writing it you have you have to start you have to start with a blank page you get get your pen, get your blank page and start writing and discipline yourself see writers like me i, I I'm my own boss, and I you know work from home, I've got my office there and You'll always find something else to do rather than sit down and write. You mm. think, ah, oh, I'm going to go and walk the dog, and I'll do a bit of writing when I get back. Then you get back and you think, ah, oh, fuck it, I'll make a cup of tea and have I'll a cup of a tea. Uh, yeah, uh, I've got a pub and have a cup of pint, so I'll write tomorrow. And then tomorrow comes and you put it off till the next day. You have to discipline yourself and do it. Yeah. Mm. And you have to have something to write about as well. I mean, I People sometimes say to me, oh, I've got a book in me, so I think well, I think you can write five thousand words. Yeah, yeah, do that easy. And then I say, Well, what about ten thousand words? And think, You this is so what you're about to say and what you're
2: saying now, when I first contacted you in order to help to get nineteen seventy two done, this is what you're saying now is what you said to me.
3: Yeah. And they say, oh, Yeah, I could do ten thousand words and I say, Well, what about twenty thousand words? And they start to think, fuck. Not sure about that. Well, so if you can't write twenty thousand words, you're not even quarter the way through it. I mean, an average book is eighty to hundred thousand words. I think we was
2: contracted for eighty thousand words, yeah. but we, we did ninety-two thousand. Yeah, yeah.
3: yeah, because like <clears throat> memoirs, like the *Tearaway* and 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 other memoirs, go into the supermarkets. Yeah, and that's where they sell most of their books to big publishers mm-hmm. and supermarkets. A book is a commodity like a tomato or a banana, and it has to be the right shape and the right size. So, over 100,000 words is too big, and under 80,000 words is too small. And, and they get a say in what's, what the book is called and what goes on the cover and everything. I mean, I, I remember doing a book called, we called it The Skivvy. It was about a scullery maid who worked in, in service as a scullery maid for the big rich people, the aristocrats, and that. Uh, during the early part of the, of the 20th century. And we had to change the title because the supermarkets didn't like the word skivvy. They said, that's derogatory and our customers won't like it. And we're not gonna take the book. We had to change the book's title to Her Ladyship's Girl, which is a fucking crap title. The skivvy was a much better much title. Better. One word, it's Yeah, killer. But we, we had to do it, you know, so. Yeah, but anyway, getting back to, to what I was saying, a lot of people think they have a book in them, but mm. what they have is a short story, really. Your website? John F. for Francis, John F. Macdonald.co.uk. And there you can find all
2: your achievements and your books and links to the purchases of yeah. books. But also to get in touch with you, if there's anyone listening who is connected to funding, or wants to invest in film, you can contact myself or contact John, and you can find him on his social media, which is Facebook, which is John McDonald, M C D O N A L D. Yeah. So spell his last name. So you can get hold of John on his website, have a look, see what he's done, get in touch with him personally, uh, and you can follow him on Facebook as well. That's it. Yeah.
3: Good. And uh, he'll help where he can. Oh yeah. I mean. It- anybody i'm always available to help other writers if mm. i can't do it yeah because it's a hard profession to be in and i know what it's like mm. very good right we're done <music>
0: episode of the Tearaway Podcast has just ended. But we know you'll be back to listen to more conversations between Dino or Doris and Dino. So make sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episode. Thank you for listening.